Right. Uh, great to see you all again. How are you all doing? Yeah, it's been a while, isn't it? We have Casey with us from Addiction and the Family podcast. And we're talking about a book, as we have before. As before, I've read it. Ronnie, have you looked at it? Right, remind me, forgive me for my ignorance, what was the name of the first book? The first book was the one on spirituality, and you read it. Yes, I did read it, yes, I really enjoyed it, actually, because I was away, and I was terrible to say, isn't it? I was bored. I didn't have well, I, didn't I, it. <laughs> I thought, yes, I've got a book to read because um, <laughs> and I read it and actually, yeah, I really, I did. I really, really enjoyed it, to be fair. It was nice. It was a, a different stance from like what people would normally think of spirituality and stuff. It was really, I liked it. Yeah. Thumbs up from me. Brilliant. And that's good for me because I normally don't read a book to the end. I've got, I'm sure, I don't know what it is, but I tend to get to the end. And for whatever reason, I'm just like, I put it down. I think I'll finish that. Another time I never normally get to finish it, but I actually finish the book. So, yeah, it must be saying something. Right on. <laughs> Much appreciated. Well, I found a lot of practical applications in, in that, actually. But I think with this new one, what fascinated me is the change in perspective. What prompted that as an idea? I mean, to be perfectly honest, it started just in a conversation with another author. I'm part of a marketing group for other people who self-publish books on various topics. I'm the only one in the group who's writing about recovery specifically. Right. Uh, they're very supportive, but they uh, said, see, one of the guys is kind of a leader in the group, as uh, oh, about a year ago now, said, you know, children's books are really great right now. You should write a children's book. And I thought to myself, like, what kind of children's book am I going to write about addiction? I mean, I write yeah. books for, you know, books for people who are trying to recover and stuff like that. That doesn't apply for a lot of five-year-olds. And so I said as a quip, oh, yeah, I'll just write a book called Mommy Drinks Too Much. You know, it's going to be a hit. But as I was driving home from the meeting, I thought, actually, I should write a book called Mommy's Getting Sober as a children's book for kids who have a parent maybe who's in treatment or who's in jail or who's just getting sober through AA or Smart Recovery or some recovery fellowship, you know, everybody's focused on the person getting sober. What do we have for the kid to say, like, here's what you might be going through? And I know a lot of times kids don't feel like they have much of a voice or they're afraid to say anything. They're walking on eggshells. They, yeah, yeah oh, they're, they're sober. I don't want to mess it up. And so I wanted to write something that would give those kids a voice. And also to tell the caregivers, because the caregiver is not always that parent. You know, maybe the parents in treatment yeah. and the other parents taking care of them, but the grandparents or an aunt or an uncle is raising them. And a lot of times people aren't sure what to say to kids. So they lie to the kids. Yeah. They may not even realize they're doing it, but they'll say like, you know, I don't want to stir anything up or they're too young to understand. But I also know myself, this is part of what informed it is. I grew up in a family where my dad had a drinking problem and you weren't allowed to talk about it. So I wanted to be able to start that conversation. So part of the idea was to write the book for the kids. But then in the back of the book, I wanted to have a caregiver's guide to tell the caregivers, like, here's how you can have these conversations with the kids. Here's what yeah. you can talk about. Here's some important guiding points. You know, I looked around to see what other children's books that were out there for addiction. There's not a whole lot. There are some. But I hadn't seen anyone else that included something to say, here's how to talk to kids about this. Like, if this book starts a conversation, here's some ideas on how to have that conversation. So that's what really inspired it. Yeah. And in the treatment context, I think, Ronnie, we see quite a lot of people who've left their kids with their significant other. And one of their great fears while they're in treatment is, what's he or she saying to the kids? 
And half the time, those people don't know what to say to the kids or they're so hurt that they're telling the kids all sorts of things they shouldn't be saying. Yeah, and it's like, it's, it, I say amongst other things, so sometimes there's always a fear of, a, you know, are they going to be, this is a perfect opportunity for my partner to tell my child that I was the bad one in the relationship and I was the one that was doing all wrong and stuff. But at the same time, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's what are they being told? And I think it's, you know, why isn't that sort of material that you've done, the book that you've done, been available before? It's only, like you say, you looked around, there was very little, and it's, the first I even thought about that myself and I think it's a fantastic idea you know to give the children a voice my father was an alcoholic and at the time I, I just knew that my father drank an awful lot and when he drank an awful lot he wasn't a nice person that's all I knew about alcoholism and stuff like that. It, it was yeah my dad drinks a lot and he was yeah couldn't speak about it definitely a lot and as a child you know being brought up in that kind of environment has a massive effect. I've come to realise more so whilst I've been in recovery, yeah. how much of an effect it has on children growing up into adulthood and beyond. And it's like, wow, this has caused me to be the sort of person that I am today, the way I feel about certain environments and stuff. And I honestly didn't believe that I was affected by it too much like I say until I've come in, into recovery and I've, it's been highlighted to me by professionals etc that you behave like that because of this reason so I think it's great to be able to include the children actively into the recovery process and that yeah. book obviously does, does that so that's great. This is something I've struggled with I haven't seen my son for a number of years because of my addiction and but um, I started writing to him. Uh, he's only five. And I didn't really know how to approach this situation where I'm at and what I'm doing. Obviously, his mom, not, I don't speak to his mom. He's only five, so she's reading the letters. But they're obviously to him. And I did actually mention that I was in recovery for addiction, but I didn't know how to word it. I just had to put it like that. I don't know. Obviously, he's five years old. He's not going to understand that. Like, I had no prior knowledge of this book till I came into this room. I think it's absolutely brilliant because a lot of addicts come into recovery and, and to be able to approach that situation in, in the right way, be able to word it right, you don't want to, like, tarnish your children or, you know, you can't keep it from them, but it's like you're using the right wording and stuff so they understand and it's, it's not, like, too traumatic for them, I guess. That's yeah. probably the best way to put yeah. it. Yeah. I'm sure you've got the book on a PDF that you'll forward to us that we'll be we'll be able I to. I sent read. it you, Ronnie. Have you sent me the new you book? Already got it. Yeah. No. Ronnie, I sent it to you because I know you read his last one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, well yeah, he's yeah. he's read one here. Let's send him another one. Well, the good news you know, is, it being a children's book, it's only about 30 pages long in total. So if you made it the last one, this is an easy read, big print, lots of pictures. But one thing that's been actually really gratifying with this that I didn't see coming when I wrote it, because of course I wrote it for, you know, kids, is seeing how some people who have grown up with the disease themselves as adults seeing how they took it when they read the book. And I had a friend, like the night that I got the copies, I'm like, okay, I have these copies in my hand. I've got the real thing. It's a book now. 
And so I brought some along to a gathering with some friends, uh, most of whom are in recovery. And one of them said, would you read it to me? And, and she's about my age. You know, I think she's late 40s, early 50s. So I sat down and thought, wow, what a treat. You know, I could sit down and read this to someone like you're reading it to your kid. I literally haven't had that experience. So I'm reading it. And she ended up just leaning against me and crying as she was listening to this. And I hadn't thought at all to think like, what is it like for adults to read this book if they've been through some of this? And I think she was probably reflecting partly for herself as a parent. Um, she's been in recovery for quite a while, but then also her own experience growing up around it. And I've gotten some good feedback from people who are in recovery about what it was like for them to read this book. And I hadn't been thinking about that at all when I wrote it. I was just thinking like, okay, can we give kids a voice? But it, sometimes it gives a voice to the, the inner child for somebody. And that's very powerful. But to come back to that basic question of like, yeah, how do you talk about this with kids? And one of the number one things that I'm going to say is first and foremost, just be honest. You know, if you had a heart disease and you had to have a discussion with your kids, you'd find some way to talk about it in five-year-old terms, but you'd be clear like this is something that can happen. Here's the kind of help that I'm getting. But also quite frankly, because genetic is estimated to be around 50% genetic, you know, if heart disease ran in the family, hopefully you talk to the kids about it at some point, right? You know, before they got yeah. too old, you say like, hey, this runs in the family. Here's some things you can do to keep yourself safe. And here's how it affected me. It doesn't have to affect you the same way. So these are discussions that I had with my daughter as she was growing up. She's 27 now. But by the time she was 10, I'd sat down and said like, look, this runs in our family. And your mom had it. I have it. We're both in recovery now. Here's what recovery looks like. You don't have to do all the things that we did, but here's some things to consider. You know, consider having a spiritual life. You know, if you're struggling with something, talk to people about it. If you allow yourself to get too isolated, that's not good for anybody, but it's particularly not good for people that, you know, have these genes that we have. And so I talked about it in 10 year old terms, and I watched over the next few years what came out of that because she did decided at a certain point. She took some of the stuff to heart and she did decide at a certain point we were living in a relatively small town, but she went to every single spiritual center in the place to try it out. She went to the Hindu temple. She went to the local Jewish center. She went to every Christian church there was just to try them all out to see like, is anything here feel like it fits? And I was super proud of that. I was thinking like, well, cool. Even if none of it sticks or you don't decide it's for you, at least you have that openness of mind. And mm. she's always been able to say, like, hey, I'm struggling with something. I think maybe I need to go see a therapist. Or she tried going to meetings herself for a while, decided it wasn't really for her as much. But let's say she needs it in 10 years. She doesn't have to think, like, what's that like? She can think, like, okay, I've tried that. Let me, let me go try that again. Maybe I need it now, and maybe I didn't think I needed it then. Totally fine. But creating that culture of openness and honesty and modeling that for our kids is a big deal to be able to say, you know, not just saying, hey, you should go get help if you need it, but I go get help if I need it. She knows if I need to book a therapy session, I'm booking a therapy session. She knows I go to meetings all the time. It just becomes part of the family culture. So instead of addiction yeah. being a central part of the family culture, we start to make recovery or the openness to a growth path part of the culture. That makes an awful lot of sense. One of the things I notice. Because obviously in, in this environment, we deal with quite a lot of death. And there's then the natural occurrences as you get, the older you get, people start dying around you. 
very uplifting, isn't it? But no, what I have noticed yeah. over time is that a lot of the kind of normies, they have nowhere to go to deal with stuff like this. They have no system. They have no inbuilt strategy for dealing with major life events. And I find myself talking to earthlings and saying, well, actually, I did this. Where did you get that from? And I don't want to say I got it from AA, but I do say I've got it from AA. Because I think those kind of principles are valid in any environment. They don't necessarily have to be connected to addiction, do they? Well, no, and and it's worth remembering that before AA, if you look at some of the earlier groups, I mean, there were the Washingtonians who were specifically for addiction. But, you know, the Oxford group, in my understanding, wasn't strictly for addiction. It was just saying, hey, these are principles that could uplift anybody. Yeah, it's just that if you didn't have something as bad as addiction going on, you didn't bother to do the works. <laughs> <So> <laughs> people get around step three, step four, the equivalent of be like, eh, yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah, maybe. But the idea is, yeah, could the spiritual principles apply to anything? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of the reasons there are so many 12-step groups and then other groups that have been inspired by 12-step groups. Yeah. You look at the stuff going on in Smart Recovery, which... It arguably started as a reaction to 12-step recovery. But, you know, they're basically teaching cognitive behavior therapy. That's something anybody could use and benefit from in their lives. And you don't have to say, like, oh, well, if you have an addiction, you, you have to go do this. But I love, to your point, a lot of the things in recovery that I started out having to do became things I now get to do. And I feel bad for the average person it's where, like, I know I could pick up the phone, I could call a sponsor, I could go to my group, I could talk to someone, I have a phone list full of people that I can reach out to. And my brother's not in the same position. I mean, I don't know who he talks to. It's, it's not me very much. <laughs> this is one of the reasons why they say grateful addict or grateful alcoholic, because you, we've got more tools to be able to deal with life stresses and strains and stuff. So, yeah, I can totally agree with that. Indeed. That's partly why I think this particular book is so important, because a lot of it is about opening a dialogue and opening dialogue and opening channels and opening support structures as early as possible. And where all those things start happening is when we're teenagers. And of course, if we were taught how to open those dialogues as children, then maybe we'd have something in place already. Okay, that's a bit utopian, isn't it? But in terms of opening a dialogue, it's partly kids are people too. We don't disclude them from this conversation just because they're five or six or seven. They are part of this family unit or whatever. They are part of this. There has to be a language for them to express how they feel within it. And if we don't open those dialogue boxes for kids, what are they going to do? They're just going to stomp their feet, scream and shout or be confused and react when they're older. Yeah, unfortunately, what often happens with kids is because when we're small, we're the center of the universe. So if something's going horribly wrong in the family, we're going to assume it's us. Like, there must be something that I did or something that I need to do differently for things to be okay. And so part of the dialogue that I encourage with kids is to let them know, like, this is not on you. However, you can take responsibility for your own feelings around it and talk about those feelings and deal with those feelings. So to your point, you know, is it utopian to say, hey, if we open the dialogue when you're five, you won't have problems with 15? Yeah, that may not happen. I mean, some kids, we may be able to intervene early enough that they don't end up heading down the path at all. But some kids, it's going to be like, look, they may tumble down the cliff no matter what we do. 
but they'll have an idea of what to do when they're ready. And I think about people that I've heard in recovery meetings saying things like, well, you know, both my parents were in recovery and I never thought I'd need it. And they even suggested it gently, but of course, you know, being in recovery programs, they kind of knew they're not going to push it. They just suggested and then kind of let me have my own path. But when I was ready, I knew where the help was. I already knew what that looked like. And I've run into people, amazing as it seems, who are in their 50s or 60s, and they show up at the treatment center where I work, and they're like, well, man, I didn't even know anything like this existed. Never crossed my mind there was help. It's like, if you're exposed to something as a child, whether you embrace it or not, you know about it, and you know it exists, you know it's possible. And that could save somebody 10 years. Yeah, I mean, arguably, it could mean that somebody might get in at 35 when otherwise there would have been 50 mm-hmm. i suppose yeah. it's possible that because a lot of us in spite of what happens we don't hear aa na ca smart we don't hear any of it until we're adults so if we know about it before then we might not follow any fucking advice and just carry on getting out of our minds anyway but we're going to know about it sooner which means we'll actually probably get there sooner and as adults, you know, in the family system, you know, to your point that you made earlier, the kids are probably not going to find recovery on their own. Somebody no. in the adult world has to open up that dialogue and say, hey, kids, this exists. There is help. And again, you don't have to do it the way we did it, but just don't keep it to yourself. Talk openly about the issues. And then as adults, I think it's on us to model that. Again, you can't just say, do as I say, but you got to show, do as I do. If I can talk openly about, hey, I'm struggling with something and I'm getting help, that's a huge leg up for the kid because that sets the tone in the example. Mommy's getting sober is premised on the idea that you have a parent who's getting sober. So for the fact that it kind of started as a joking title that, hey, uh, I'm going to you know, write a book called Mommy Drinks Too Much, that is in fact the title of the next book. I talked with the yeah. artist and we decided we're actually going to do a trilogy. Uh, so this right. is going to be the middle book of the trilogy. It's going to follow that format that people hear in Alcoholics Anonymous of like what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now, except from the child's okay. perspective. Mommy drinks too we're much. Write, mommy's we're going to write the book sober, for the kids. Sober. Yeah. We're going to write the book for the kids on what does it feel like and what can you do if your parent is actively in their addiction. And the main theme of, the, of that book is be able to talk about your experience. It might help to talk to somebody, and also it's not your fault. Because that's such a big thing for kids is they'll just take it on and think like, okay, maybe I did something. Or if I was a better kid or if I was quieter or louder, or maybe I need to stomp my feet and get some attention, like you said. And being able to say, hey, there's another way to go about it. And of course, in the back of that one, there's also going to be a guide for the caregivers. And, you know, if you're the grandparent or the uncle who's watching this and just thinking, man, what can I do? Here's some ways that you can talk to kids about what's going on so that we can, again, start to steer them towards opening up and getting help versus internalizing it and shutting down. But yeah. that'll be next year. So, you know, when I see you guys next year on the, on the podcast, <laughs> we'll probably be talking about that book. Yeah. Yeah. So I was going to say, I think also as well, because growing up with impaired alcoholic, I just believed that it was only unique to my family. My dad was an alcoholic or my dad drank too much. I didn't think for a second it's a bit more widespread than that. And it was just like, well, my family's weird. My family's unusual because my dad drinks too much and he turns into a bully. But if you're a child and you get to read a book about it, that would probably make the child feel a little bit more like he's not alone as well. He's not the only person in the world who's 
mother or father drinks so much that you know it causes the household to be turned upside down so I think that as well would help with the with the child definitely and it is really isn't it because it's alarming to think that only from hearing about this book that you've got Al-Anon where wives and husbands and family can go but it's never inclusive as far as I'm aware there's not much talk inclusive of the the children at the same time and you know really who's going to be most affected and I believe that it probably will be percentage the children that are more affected than the actual partners because they're psychologically when they're growing up and seeing that that has an effect on their brain and how they function later on down in in life whereas you know the wife of a, a husband who's an alcoholic that brain's already formed it's already made and stuff so the children have most likely more damaging effect when they've got parents who are alcoholics or drug addicts and some kind of coping mechanism to be put in place to reassure them that it's not what they've done wrong and this isn't completely abnormal and this happens and it's an illness probably help form their skills their cognitive skills or whatever it is as they're growing up understand it more and not so much fight it too much you know and and believe that it's all wrong so it's nice it's definitely something that needs to be done and it's obviously you're doing that and that's great and it needs to be more widespread as well it needs to be looked at more the critical thing on it is that while this book is for children i can already see how it might be used to alter the adult perspective because yeah. i see this all the time people making assumptions that okay the kids of 11 and over can understand the excessive drinking They can understand the drug use. Mm -hmm. They can contextualise the damage. They can actually get a picture of what's happening and therefore we can tell them. But the kids under 11, no, no, they won't understand. Let's just hide it from them. That adult perspective does need to change if we are to allow children into the conversation. Absolutely. And that was part of that just comes out of my own professional experience of running family workshops and working with families. And seeing, sometimes people are just kind of bringing the kids along because they don't have a babysitter that day or something like that. And, you know, see, so there's a six-year-old sitting in this group, you know, room full of adults. <laughs> and in doing family work, one of the perspectives is start with the youngest person in the family and give them a voice first because they're usually the one that doesn't get listened to at all. They're just used to like, oh, you're last in line, least respect, you know, opinion rarely heard. So Typically, we'll flip that dynamic on their head and start with the youngest person in the family. So I'll find myself talking with a six-year-old in front of a room full of adults, many of whom they don't know. And so obviously, it takes like a little bit of encouragement and all that. But I found that once that child opens up, they have a lot to say. Like they know something is off. They're not sitting there thinking, wow, everything's great. And occasionally, mom or dad just acts really weird or just turns into a different person. And so when you can get those kids to start open up to say, yes, I know that sometimes you act really differently and they may or may not have made the association that that's related to a chemical use. But a lot of times kids have started to notice. Uh, partly I'd know that out of, again, my own personal experience growing up. And I was somewhere three, four, maybe five years old in my family. And my brother's two years older. And I remember one night, my probably Christmas, my dad stumbled off to bed and I was like, daddy's tired and my brother goes no stupid 
you know, like a five to seven year old saying it to his younger brother, he goes, no, stupid, he's drunk. And I remember just like this light bulb going on, kind of like, oh, oh, wow. Okay. So here we are three to five years old and I'm making this connection aided by my brother's not so, so gentle attempt. I'm making this connection of like, oh, this is this thing that happens and we don't know when dad's going to do it and when he's not. Okay, mm. that starts to reframe my worldview. Now, if someone had walked in at that moment and said, by the way, that's not your fault and you can and should talk to people about what you're going through, that would have been a very different experience. But instead, I was literally, it was both modeled and told me directly, don't talk to anybody about what happens in this house. You can't tell anybody yeah. about this. And so the kid is like, okay, this now becomes this thing that I have to carry wherever I go. So being able to shift yeah. that perspective and say like, yeah, maybe that's not the best way to go about it. Because believe me, the kids may or may not understand all the facets of it. But frankly, most of the adults don't either. I mean, they don't know the chemical reaction going on in the brain. They don't need to know. All they need to know is you put that bottle to your lips and you change. That's all I need to know. I don't need to know the mechanisms. Just like they say, we don't need to understand electricity, use light switch. Well, kids don't need to wrap their head around it in an adult way to know that somebody's mind can become sick the same way their body can become sick mm-hmm. and help is available for either one. Mm-hmm. And just because it happens to one person doesn't mean it's going to happen to another person, but we can be aware that this can happen. And we talk about it as adults as a disease, right? And scientifically and medically, everybody, for the most part, agrees with that model. Okay, this is a disease. But there's so much stigma and shame attached to it that we get that idea of like, oh, I don't want to mess up your view of your parent. Well, it doesn't mess it up for the kid until somebody comes along and says, oh, they should be ashamed. Oh, this should be a secret. This is a shameful thing you shouldn't talk about outside the family. We can start to remove that stigma just by dragging it into the light and just saying like, hey, no, this is a thing that can happen. You know, stuff can go wrong with your tummy. Stuff can go wrong in your mind. Again, here's some things you can do to avoid this ever happening for you when you're talking to the child. And also to understand your parent probably still loves you underneath all that, but they have something going on with their mind. And, you know, in the case of this book, we're trying to get them some help. They're doing something to change this, which also models when you have issues, you can talk to someone and you can also get help and you can change just like they did. I think having that conversation, it's almost never too early to have that conversation. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the other thing that strikes me with kids is that while it might be said, we don't tell anyone about what happens in the house, they can quite easily go into school and there's three other kids saying, your dad's a drunk or your mom's a, an addict or whatever. And while there's never an easy way for them to deal with that, if they're actually part of that dialogue at home, then they won't feel doubly stung every time they hear that from their peers. Yeah. It is a consideration of what kids face outside that perhaps we don't register. Yeah. I kind of imagine you know, one of those things. I, you've got this image in my head now of you know a couple of kids going like, "Oh well, your dad's a drunk," and you know being able to be like, "Yeah, well he's getting help, so <laughs> back off, man. His yeah. mind's sick. That's not his fault. Back off." You know, you to think do that, like, that. "Oh, I can't talk about it," or you know, "How dare you say anything about my dad? He doesn't drink, even though you know that he does." We don't have to put kids in those positions. We can arm them with the facts instead. Oh, yeah, I agree, because instead of this being your dad's a drunk, no, he isn't. Yes, he is. And then they start fighting. Having something of value to say is actually going to wrong foot the opposition, I think. Yeah. Also, it means that the child doesn't feel 
isolated just by sitting in the room. Like you said, Ronnie, the kids sitting in the classroom thinking, it's only me. Everyone's looking at me because this only happens in my family. Everybody knows they're just not saying it. Whereas if they've got some understanding of it and they can talk about it, they won't necessarily feel that way. It could be like, yeah, my dad is getting help. He's a recovering alcoholic. But you, what about yours? Is he hiding the drinks yet? How do you, have you found out yet? There's lots of secrets. I know what happens with oh, addicts and alcoholics. <laughs> Check behind oh, the cupboards. You don't know what you might find. <laughs> and you've got all the kids running home to the parents. Are you stashing vodka somewhere? <laughs> Uh, my no, my mate's in recovery, and he's told me that you might hide vodkas in the shed down at the bottom of the garden. Well, yeah. <laughs> That's what happens when the dialogue goes wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Can you just imagine it, can't you? Well, let's have a meeting about it in school. But no, it's a fantastic idea. I just think it's something that's been missed. Not forgotten, just missed and just not even just realise that, you know, the, how much the children would benefit from this. And like you say, even if they don't need to use the principles, they don't turn into addicts or alcoholics. It's a nice little rule book for life as well. At the same time, like dealing with other problems as well. You can apply those issues, those principles and those rules to pretty much anything, can't you? It's like yeah, educating kids as well. So later on in life, even if they aren't an addict, they might yeah. know an addict. They might have more of an understanding about it because there's a lot of stigma around addiction and alcoholism, <laughs> even from people who are addicts. So you're educating the next generation. So that hopefully, like when they grow up, more people will understand it. It'll be seen as a health condition rather than the way people see it sometimes, you know? Definitely. Yeah, moving away from the model of it's a moral failing that you need to hide. And you know, yeah. medical conditions that you need to expose. Like, you know, this is the way to get help. Yeah, if you got diabetes, we can't help you if you don't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, you wouldn't but... hide from other people at school that your parent had a physical illness. Right. So why hide that? Yeah. And that becomes part of the broader conversation about mental health in general. Yeah. Is it shameful or is it something where it's like, no, this happens for people worldwide and there's help available? And I think that last piece, the fact that there's help available. That's kind of a big deal. And, and while this might be a meta idea for a kid, you know, if you're able to hand them a book saying, here's a book about this, on some level, you got to understand, well, by the time somebody wrote a book, I can't possibly be the only person. <laughs> I can't yeah. be alone in this if they're putting books out about it. Obviously, That's other people book. have been through this experience. So like, to Ronnie, to your point, like at the very least, you can say, hey, you're not alone in this. And yeah. it's interesting, you know, I, you know, the book's been out, I guess, coming up on eight weeks now. Yeah, it's been just about two months and I'm grateful, you know, people are buying them, people are responding to it, stuff like that. And I sell them through Amazon so I can go on the computer and look at what they say the sales were each day. And one day, you know, an unusual number, I think like 30 books sold in one day. And normally, quite honestly, it's one, two, maybe three, four books a day at the top. Like four would be a big day to 30. And I'm like, now the thing is, Amazon's never going to tell me who bought those books. Like did 30 people go buy a book? Were they just catching up from last month? Or here's my hope. Somebody, you know, therapy group, treatment center, somebody said, hey, I'll take 20 of those so that when somebody with a kid comes through, we can be like, here you go. Or Mm -hmm. a parent coming through, because this is something uh, one of my colleagues, uh, another therapist did, is, is she said she pulled out this book right after it came out, and she handed it to a young mother who Mm -hmm. was kind of struggling a little bit in the treatment center and said, here, read this. And she read it 
and came back and said, okay, I'm getting serious about this recovery thing. It hadn't occurred to me what this looks like to my kids. Those are, again, ways that I wrote a book. I didn't think, oh, maybe this will be leveraged to get somebody to get serious about the recovery, or maybe this will help somebody who's been through it. I was just thinking, like, let's get the kids a book. But other people are showing me, and I'm so grateful for this, that there are other ways that this material can be used to inspire a parent to say, like, let's say you've got somebody who's thinking about getting sober, but they're not quite sure about it. Maybe they could read this or something like this and say, like, oh, yeah, maybe I do need to do this. I mean, how cool is that? It's brilliant. I love the idea. And like you say, it's, you know, it's not just from one angle. It's not just for the child. It's for the addict and it's, it's for the adult that's had. So it can be the adult who's going through addiction themselves and, and they may have experienced it themselves as a child as well. So there's awesome. lots of different ways it can help people just to give that perspective. And it's all about giving another view, a different view, isn't it, from another angle. And it's just yeah, it's, it's just brilliant. I, I love it. I'm going to come wait to read it, to be fair, just to see if I can nurture my having an, an alcoholic as a parent and also to see how a child would look at it, because I think that's always missed. Definitely. Is it froze again? <laughs> no, it hasn't. actually. No, I was having a thinking moment in terms of as, as a trilogy of what was, what happened and what it's like now. This is a matter of partly changing the perspective on the journey and partly changing the tone to make it a more complete journey isn't it it is and and a complete journey for the child as well as for the adult for the yeah exactly and kind of having that in mind now that it's like okay this is something that a child can read this something an adult can read and just thinking like okay where would I go with this? Because someone said, okay, well, are you going to write more children's books? And someone suggested, and with a good heart, they suggested, well, you could write like, you know, mommy's getting sober, daddy's getting sober, uncle's getting sober, brother's getting sober. I was like, yeah. eh, it feels a little contrived. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I yeah, yeah, do yeah. with that. But as so often happens, morning's kind of my creative time. And I woke up the morning after one of those conversations and just thought, you know, that original title, Mommy Drinks Too Much, I thought of that just sort of as like a dark joke. And I thought, like, well, what would that book be about? And so I tried writing it, and I did write the text. I sent it off to the artist. We've been talking now. She's starting to work on the the next set of illustrations for it. And so the working title of the third book would be, so far, the idea is Mommy's in Recovery, and so am I. And so being able to talk to kids about what does ongoing recovery look like? Because while your parents drinking, it's just like survival mode. When they first get sober, it's like, okay, everything's changing. Who am I? Where do I stand in this now? And so Mm -hmm. the third book is really about, like, what does it look like if a family is working on recovery together? Because doing the kind of family work that I do, I've seen it. You know, it only takes one person to change, right? You know, everybody doesn't need to jump into therapy at the same time or whatever. It only takes one person to change. But when multiple people in a family are working on growth and recovery and working on themselves at the same time, like, miracles can happen. It's just So it's not like 10 plus 10. It's like 10 times 10 because we're feeding off. You don't have to talk about everything that happened in therapy, but just knowing like, you know, hey, sorry, I did that. I'm working on it is a lot different than sorry, I did that. I'm going to do it again tonight. Being able to have just that dialogue within families about, yeah, this is something we do. We're in recovery instead of this is something we do. We all drink. And I've heard that from enough people. But being able to say, you know, in this family, recovery is part of the culture. It's just what we do around here. That can again my fond hope and yeah <laughs> give me the feedback of a utopian but it's something i believe is that you can start to shift the family culture so that say 
three, four generations down the line, a hundred years from now, great, 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 great grandkids that I'm never going to meet can benefit from what we're doing today. And I, I tell my clients that, you know, the work we're doing in the treatment center, no offense, but it's not just about you. It's going to affect all the other people, including family members you may never meet. Looking at it simplistically, it's all the pay it forward principle, isn't it? It's uh, whatever we've got, we pass on and hope mm-hmm. that that's then passed on again. And every generation as it comes adds to that in terms mm-hmm. of the societal pressures that emerge or the cultural pressures that change, that there are those additions made over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, in, in the same way as AA functions now, just the same as it did in 1935, but there will be a version of AA that will still function in 100 years' time. And the stuff that we're doing now that will be relevant in 100 years' time. And none of us are going to meet the people that benefit from it. Yeah, a lot of people in AA can talk about, oh, man, the good old timers and, you know, Dr. Bob and Bill W. and all this kind of stuff. But you have to realize there have been generations of people in between who carried that torch and made it their own and showed one person showing another person that this is possible. That long before I was born, somebody was just working in the trenches in recovery so that I can find it today. That's kind of a big deal. But to speak to something you're saying there, within families, there is always a culture. There are things passed along. And I always tell people, like, addiction, we can say it's 50% genetic, but there's not, like, an addiction gene. Like, either you have it or you don't. It's a suite of different genes, which is why addiction might hit several members of a family or all the men or all the women. Or what often happens is it'll skip a generation or two, and then it rears its ugly head again. But the behavior patterns how we look at things, how we talk about things or don't talk about them, those get passed down to everybody. Everybody gets an earful of don't talk outside the family of what happens in the family. Or one that I heard at a family workshop one time, it was the sister of a client. We were talking about opening up emotionally and she said, oh yeah, when I was a kid, like if I was crying, I would be told, go in the bathroom, young lady, you don't come out till you've got a smile on your face. Well, what are we teaching somebody about emotions and how you deal with them and what you need to present to the world? Yeah. Well, those things get passed down to everybody, whether they've got the addiction or not. So unfortunately, if those intergenerational patterns don't change, then the next time the addiction genes and circumstances and, you know, in somebody's life come together where this does come up for them, mm-hmm. everybody's sort of waiting with open arms. Oh, we already know how to not talk about things. We're ready for you. Mm-hmm. So imagine we shift that to where within yeah. the family, we do talk about things. And each generation, whether it's a cousin or your kid, the addiction starts to come up. And now we're waiting with like, hey, you have an issue. Here's where help is. We talk about things. You already know how to talk about your feelings. Can we say no one will have addiction again? No, that again, as you put it, probably too utopian. But we can say we are ready with a whole different toolkit within this family. And that can get passed down to everybody generation to generation. That's my vision. That's my hope. Yeah, definitely. That's my mission. Um, yes, yeah, as, as equally as addiction goes through the generations and has an effect on like, my granddad, who I never even met, he was an addict. Yeah, so it, as as addiction affects families down the line, uh, recovery can benefit generations that we're not going to meet, like you said. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Like breaking the cycle. Absolutely. So just I love what you said about your writing letters to your five-year-old. Like that becomes part of that change. As opposed to, oh, yeah, I never knew who my dad was, because that's enough people's story. Being able to say, yep, he was writing me these letters when I was five and talking about some of these things and talking about what's going on with him. And 
you have such a beautiful opportunity there that your child might pick that same letter up when they're 25 and say like, oh, wow. Yeah, I can see something. I can now see something that I couldn't see then. So it has an impact now and it can impact your lives later. So good on you for doing that. Yeah, and the interesting thing about writing letters, I still write letters and the other people just do everything electronically. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is is an old art form, isn't it? Very much so. I think going back to keep it in the family and stuff like that, in the sense of, I do remember being told if I was going somewhere, do not talk about the family business. Do not talk about the family business. And it was always drummed into me where, you know, if I was going to aunties or uncles and stuff like that. And it is very suffocating, isn't it? You can get to the point where you, you grow up being told to keep secrets all the time. So if you can... Because addiction and alcoholism, let's just call it addiction on a whole, is, is rife. It's, it's, it's everywhere. At least somebody knows somebody who's suffering with addiction. So, you know, I think what you're doing is bringing that into the family home, recovery into the family home is a fantastic idea because, yeah, the addict will go out to a meeting and then come back and then try and live that normal life into a meeting today and, and that's it but to incorporate recovery into the family life doesn't just help the addict it helps the whole family and also puts some morals down and stuff of, of how to behave and like you say how to overcome problems again i've said it before earlier on it doesn't just have to be applied to drug addiction or alcohol addiction it could be all sorts of areas of life you've got a problem just speak up about it feel free to speak and don't run in the bathroom and and cry and come out only with with a smile on your face you know it can change the way families function and potentially make them you know help them to get along better just by talking about different things so it'd be nice to see that being implemented in the future in families and stuff you know yeah my dad's in recovery so we do this and we do that and it's actually quite normal to have somebody in recovery within a family if not even not just immediate but cousins and uncles and stuff like that to be able to support them as well it's a fantastic idea and it it will be done it's inevitable really that that's the way it will go move forwards if people have got access to to recovery the only thing I knew about AA and stuff like that was what I've seen on EastEnders. If you've, <laughs> um, I haven't seen that one, but yeah, terrible um, soap opera. It's a terrible soap opera, but there's a whole world. Of it. Yeah, there's a whole world of it. It shouldn't be kept behind closed doors. Do you think though that we're now at a point where our society is more ready to accept an open dialogue about addiction in the way that it wouldn't have been 30, 40 years ago? More ready, yes. Perfectly ready, no. But more ready, yes. Yeah, certainly imperfectly ready. Yeah, but I'd say we're always pushing the dialogue forward and, frankly, doing podcasts like this, writing books, just talking openly about it. All of those things push the dialogue forward because we all in our brain have this automatic instinct as human beings, as a tribal animal, known as in-group, out-group bias, which means I always want to know who's in my tribe and who's not in my tribe. And so if we don't consciously know somebody who's in recovery or struggling with addiction, then it's easy to make that into the other. Oh, that's those people over there. We don't have that kind of issue. That's not us. That's them, not us. As we get to know, and this is shown with all kinds of social issues, but as we get to know that like, oh, yeah, you're somebody I know, I like you, and I guess you're in recovery from addiction. Oh, I had no idea. When that conversation happened, now 
people with addiction and other mental health issues be, start to become us instead of them. Yeah. Then stigma goes down. Then opportunities for conversation come up. Then it's easier to accept help or advocate for help. So much of it is just normalizing like, yep, this is a normal part of life. You already know people. You may be one of those people. You don't need to keep it hidden. All those things create more of a sense of in the tribe. And that opens up the conversation. Then it's much easier to have the conversation uh, just as more and more people are open and, you know, so speak out of the closet with like, yep, I'm in recovery and it's just a normal thing. And it's like, oh, okay, well, it's a normal thing. Then this is just part of my own personal experience about recovery is that as I let go of my own guilt and shame, which for me was a combination of going to recovery meetings, doing the work that was suggested, doing therapy, doing my own work, reading things, writing things, all those things helped me to drop the stigma and shame that I carried around it. And I found that when I felt less ashamed about it, other people seemed to feel less ashamed about yeah. addiction. It's kind of like, I'm like, yeah, I'm a guy in recovery. And I remember having a conversation, you know, obviously with somebody who wasn't in recovery in a very non-recovery context. And he said, oh yeah, so-and-so, they're an addict. I, I just can't work with addicts. And I said, well, I'm an addict. I'm in recovery from addiction. Mm-hmm. He goes, oh, oh, okay. Well, you know, Case, you're kind of different. And, and it's <laughs> that's, that's another thing that comes up when people carry a prejudice or a stigma is that if they run into somebody who goes against their prejudice or stigma, the first reaction is sometimes, well, like, oh, but you're a shiny example. You're different than all the, those people. Yeah. But when you start to know two or three people, it's harder to hold that argument up. Right. And yeah. I myself, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, when he says like, oh, well, you're different. I said, well, I'm not that different. Obviously, I have something very important in common with that other person, but. I've been in recovery for a while when people are in recovery from addiction and maybe it looks a little bit different and not what you're, not what you're thinking of. And do I know that that like changes life and perspective? I don't know for sure, but I know it's one more, like you were talking, like does the conversation shift in society often one person, one conversation at a time, you know, one podcast, one book, one little thing that helps to change the dialogue. And that can only make things better from my perspective. Right. We believe it or not are on time. Check it out. Don't know where that hour went. Thank you again, Casey. Do you want to give your last plug for the book before we go? Sure. So the official plug, uh, the book is called Mommy's Getting Sober. It's a children's picture book that also includes a caregiver's guide on how to talk to kids about addiction. It's available on Amazon in the UK and the United States and really anywhere that Amazon sells books. So, Which is everywhere. Uh, yeah, which is pretty much everywhere on Earth right now. So, and it's available as either electronic or a paperback copy whatever suits you best and i'm just very happy to have the opportunity to come back and talk with you guys you know book or no book it's just great to have these dialogues yeah and thank you and we'll do this again absolutely well thank you so, so much thank you all right thank, thank you, you. Thank Ciao. You. bye bye cheers